Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Thanks for listening to us today. This is the 52nd and final episode of the Athletic Football Tactics podcast in the year 2023. We are deep into stoppage time. There's a real end of term feel in the studio. I'm Ali Maxwell. Mark Carey's here. Hi, Ali. Liam Tharm's here as well. Hello. And Michael Cox too. Hi, Ali. Michael, another trip round the sun, as people insist on saying. Uh, Our fourth full year doing this podcast. And it's been a good one. Yeah, it has been a good one. Yeah, I was trying to think of a way to make a trip around the sun related to the World Cup and being in the other opposite side, you know, opposite side of the world. Mm. Different time zones and that, different seasons. But uh, yeah, it's been good. I think it's been a good uh, year for football. I was just looking back at all the results, all the things I've written and... It's been good. Champions League was good. Really enjoyed the Women's World Cup. This Premier League season started well. As we've done a couple of podcasts ago, there's some surprise league leaders around Europe, which you don't get too often. So overall, 2023, pretty good, I think. Yeah, we have been kept busy. If you look at the first episodes of 2023, it does show how much things change in a year. And just as well, too, for a weekly podcast like ours, uh, Liam, we had first Conte's Spurs. Kane's goals, January transfers and second half FC was the title of that one. We had why Chelsea gambled on Joao Felix and what (laughs) Veghorst will bring to Manchester United. Uh, And we also had scouting for Liverpool's next Vinaldum, which looking at the midfield that started on the weekend, Mark, Gravenberch, Alexis McAllister, Soboslai, can't say they didn't try. No, and I'd argue that it was actually Curtis Jones who was the the Wijnaldum replacement. His ball retention is incredible. We... Must have overlooked him at the time, but he'd be the Wijnaldum replacement. Absolutely. Well, a huge thank you to everyone that's listened this year, to all that contribute with uh, tweets or comments on the episode page on the Athletic app. Episode ideas are always welcome, but anyone that sends us kind messages and support uh, or otherwise constructive feedback, uh, that does help us a lot and really gives us a boost. So thank you for being with us this year. Uh, Today, it's going to be a 2023 notebook. I've asked the guys to present the most interesting stories, developments, narratives or or changes in football in 2023 as a nice way to bookend the year. So a sort of time capsule preserving tactical and statistical trends from elite level football in 2023. Let's kick it off, uh, Liam, in terms of notable tactical trends across 2023 what springs to mind the the big one has been and it can be any anyone in the defensive position moving someone into the middle generally from out wide often a fullback and sort of the the box midfield thing that I feel like has just got everyone a bit of a, a tactical chokehold over the past um sort of 12 months and it was probably something City started I think from memory at Anfield in late 2022 in, in the 1-0 Liverpool win but since we've seen a lot of other teams you know Barcelona have done it um, Liverpool have increasingly done it in terms of moving someone in we now see it with Spurs with both fullbacks sort of coming inside um, and it's just a real sort of contrast in terms of the, the fullback creativity of wanting that player to 
be a bit more technical is probably the wrong word because I think it's quite technical to be creative and provide assists but to be a controller and mm-hmm. um, to overload the midfield and um, often to try and isolate the wingers a lot more I know we've got a few games left this calendar year across the Premier League but there have been 63 assists um, from fullbacks this calendar year in the Premier League and around the same amount of expected assists so it's not like a big sort of skew either way um, you go back last year it was 98 assists uh, go back even farther to 2021, it was 102. Um, so it's a real drop-off from from in recent years. Um, so there's a clear difference now in terms of, I think, what, what the coaches want from some of those fullbacks. Fullback position, Michael, has changed a lot over the last 10, 20 years in a number of different ways. And that was the case again in 2023. Yeah, and uh, I mean, one of the interesting things about the, the way City did it was they ended up back end of last season with John Stones actually doing it from centre-back to central midfield in what was a back four of four centre-backs, really, which I don't think anyone would have expected a couple of years ago. So that Champions League final 1-0 win against Inter, they played Ake, Akanji, Diaz and John Stones. And Stones was the key player just stepping forward from centre-back to midfield. And that's something that, you know, very few players, I think, have the ability to do. But it's become such a pattern of City and of, as Liam says, of the Premier League in general. I mean, Manchester City against Arsenal was one of the crucial fixtures or the crucial fixture last season. And Guardiola used Bernardo Silva as his left back. So mm. at some points he's using Bernardo Silva and some points he's using like a convert centre-back. So there's loads of interesting things going on in that position. And I actually think defenders in general and their evolution has been the most interesting thing in football tactics over the last five years or so. It feels like every time we're kind of trying to come up with an idea for this podcast based around a position, it's not really about the strikers or the wingers. They've kind of done their technical evolution. But what defenders have have gone through over the last five years in terms of an evolution of their game has just been fascinating. And it's not too uncommon to have centre-backs play at full-back, but that's similarly happening as well, as you say, Michael, Manchester City. But Chelsea having Axel de Zazi on the, the right-hand side at right-back and Levi Colwell uh, at left-back, that it seems that they're sort of, if not copying, the main thing I want to think about here is that it doesn't feel like historically it's been that common that the top sides are copying each other or doing the same thing because I'm wary of saying copying because Ange Postacoglu has sort of drawn attention to the fact that he's just copying Pep, mate. But <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't really feel like it's happened as much until recently. And I don't know whether it is just identifying that that is a, a beneficial way to, to play the game so we're going to do it as well or they've all converged on the the same idea at a similar time I don't know but it definitely feels like the the top sides are converging on a similar build-up play should we say it's also the youth of the players that are being used in that midfield of fullbacks or hybrid role so Curtis Jones did it a bit for the England 21s um, again like these players now that have come through an awful lot of P Academy coaching and all, all the, um, you know, that emerging generation now. We've seen with Jack Hinshaw at Brighton, who was a really good technical midfielder for the 18s and the 21s, and Deserby has stuck him straight in in Europa League games, in Premier League games. Sure, a little bit out of necessity, but he's got other sort of centre backs he could use in those wide spaces, but is prepared to sort of move him in field. Rico Lewis, obviously the big one for City, who was almost the perfect player, it felt, for that role. Destiny Doggy, who is another young player that, that Postacoglu has thrown straight into that. So it's almost a very clear delineation I think between like you're one of two types of defender of this physical one that can do anywhere across the back line almost or you're the one that can go further forward and and inside You say Michael it's particularly interesting role and suitable for top level teams perhaps more than others because I think you said something like it's a very hard role to adapt to, it's a hard skill set to have to be able to, to defend in wide areas but also 
essentially be a midfield player in possession. Do you think that we will see more natural, so to speak, central midfield players playing nominally full-back roles, certainly when you write it out on paper, rather than teams looking for current full-back types who they think might be able to adapt to that role? Yeah, I think you're probably right. I mean, it was this time last year where Rico Lewis, I think, made his debut for Manchester City or certainly his first Premier League start. And I was covering that game and just immediately was amazed how good he was on the ball and wrote an article solely about how he was, I think, the next generation of of that kind of fallback. You know, as Liam says, players have almost been almost groomed to play that role, a role that didn't exist kind of 10 years ago. So, yeah, I think that probably will be the case. I mean, Alexander Arnold's an interesting one because he was a midfielder in the youth team, then almost solely a fullback in the first team. And now it looks like has blended the roles very well. And Hinchelwood, I think, is a great shout. I mean, it's actually interesting to hear Liam say what his position was in the youth teams because watching him for the first time, I had no idea. He just looked so comfortable being a fullback and going into midfield. And yeah, there's going to be more of those players, I expect. So if we see a lot, if not all of the top clubs attempting this or adopting this approach full-time, so to speak, what do we think will be the natural reaction to this action in, in tactics? There is always something that comes in order to to counteract a, a, a trend that develops and, and becomes established. I mean, I'm not sure. I think one of the reasons that fullbacks often tuck inside, we've seen it with Alexander Sinchenko say in a, I think it was a video with, with Rio Ferdinand that you know, the reason that he does it is so that he can tuck in, drag a, a opponent with him and it opens up space in the, the passing angle for a Martinelli or someone similar. So they're, they're creating overloads to make space in, in the wide areas. And I wonder whether, if nothing else, teams might just not kind of fall for that a little bit and then just don't don't take the bait a little bit and ensure that the ball is still in front of them rather than getting pulled apart and maybe sort of adapt a little bit in that way. I don't know if that's a bit more of a reactive thing than a proactive thing because it is so hard to predict trends. But I think that there's so many different reasons why the fullbacks tuck inside. So Alexander Arnold tucks inside so that he can get on the ball and start to spray passes around. Other fullbacks are tucking in more to, to drag a player with them and open up passing angles elsewhere. Others maybe to get more into to half spaces in more advanced areas like Spurs fullbacks. But yeah, it's, it's quite hard to to say what the proactive sort of solution would be to that, but maybe not kind of taking the bait at, at times might be a tactical growing trend. I think defending against it is particularly awkward because as you point out the way like it can be used to manipulate a block, but there's definitely become a way to exploit it on the counter-attack of it's the ball that goes in behind into the channels because then the fullback's got you know a greater distance to run if you can... Either have, uh, I think Inter have been a great example in sort of, you know, releasing the wing backs really, really early. But we've now, I think, got into a weird position where lots of teams or certain teams will also do the do the box midfield because they've got these wing back profiles who they don't really want in deeper positions. They want them more advanced. They can push them farther forward. But then when they haven't, you know, got the, the time or the position to get back and cover the space, uh, if you've got a winger or a wing back, you can release them behind them on the counter-attack. If you've got a number nine, you know, I'm thinking this is this a perfect like Ollie Watkins sort of style run diagonally into the channel. If you've got that number nine that can go 1v1 or 1v2, then you can get a lot of joy that way. And I guess it then, the flip side is, you load up on really good physical centre-backs, the, the William Saliba types that you go, yeah, you're fine 1v1 out wide. Let Virgil van Dijk go 1v1 and you go, tactically, it's actually probably initially quite problematic because you go, I'm going to allow my centre-back to get dragged that 1v1 into the channel. But now because they're such you know such good athletes and so good technically 1v1, you go, actually, it's fine. They're, they're, they'll be okay. What I'd be interested in 
you've kind of presented that stat about expected assists and assists being provided by fullbacks without wanting to put you on the spot, Liam, because this wasn't asked of you beforehand. It'd be interesting to know where those assists and expected assists are, are going. Who who has stepped up to the creative plate as a response to the fullbacks being less or having less of a creative impact in the final third? Any any posits? No, I was just going to say, especially because the goals per game rate is so high this season. Right. So it's not like they've gone down overall. Someone's creating these chances. <laughs> I'd say possibly possibly wingers. I think you're now getting the rise of the two-way winger. Someone like a Jeremy Doku who can go on the outside and play cutbacks as well as cut in and, and shoot. Karim Thomas had success with that as well. So you're starting to get that an awful lot more because that's just where the space ends up being, especially against deeper blocks. And I think advanced midfielders as well. I think of, of, of De Bruyne, of Odegaard in particular, you know, making those sort of late crashing runs. I don't know what the stats are in terms of set pieces and if, you know, sort of defenders are contributing more. But I think the the best teams now at the top definitely seem to have a real broader spread. Okay, Manchester City maybe an exception to that with with Haaland, but Arsenal in particular last season had such a wide range of goals and, and their sisters too. What are the top line out of possession trends that have had an impact on top level football in 2023? So I've had a quick look at the numbers uh, to do my best Mark Carey impression. The high turnovers this calendar year are higher than they've been uh, in the past five years. And obviously we've still got games to play. I think pressing across the board now, and that's not just because the top teams are doing it the most. We've spoken before, I think, on how it feels like it's now a homogenous thing of almost every team, you know, comes in and, and wants to press high. And a lot of that then becomes these man for man approaches. You get a lot of sort of structures where, and I think, Bournemouth against Manchester United recently was a great example that Irola's come in and implemented a, a really high pressing system where you've sort of got one number 10 that's set to mark a double pivot and once they step to one of the midfielders another midfielder follows in to jump on the other one or a centre-back steps up we've got so used to seeing and particularly when I watch a lot of Brighton now seeing sort of Lewis Dunk or Jan Paul Van Hecker last season last season it was Levi Colwell going with a, a midfielder or a striker all the way into like the final third that's just become normal because when you look on and go man for man you've got to commit because otherwise there's a spare player or then the you know the space becomes available and when that gets broken we now see a lot of teams City and Arsenal great examples dropping into sort of a 4-4-2 mid block and just going zonal and saying okay fine you've broken through us we're now going to condense the space you know and then we'll try and press out of that so we'll we'll block it up we'll lock you in out wide force you back to your keeper and then we can go again it's contributed to to my eyes anyway a lot of premier league games particularly between the very top teams michael looking and feeling a lot more open less of an onus on compactness out of possession and actually more of a risk or high risk high reward approach which has probably contributed to the increased number of goals that we're seeing. Yeah, one of the things I I find quite interesting is the situation at goal kicks where you almost have two completely different situations. One, if the goalkeeper is going to hit the ball long, you have all 20 outfielders congregating in kind of the middle strip, kind of 15 yards either side of the halfway line. Whereas if the goalkeeper is determined to play short, that team will keep their attackers really high up the pitch to stretch the play. So you often have this weird situation where you have five versus five on the edge of the box, five versus five on the halfway line, and then just 30 yards in the middle of absolutely nothing happening. And I think it's one of those things that it's actually quite difficult to see on television, certainly from the main camera angle. But when you're actually at the games, it just looks mad. I mean, like even five years ago, so before the change to the, the, goal, uh, the goal kick rule, where now you can play a goal kick within your own penalty box. Even before this, you wouldn't have got such an extreme situation because the centre-backs couldn't go there. So you've got the opposition having to cover 18 extra yards of space. The team taking the goal kick kind of gets the first one or two passes free, at least in theory. And it's just completely stretched the game. And we see more goals than ever of 
you know, goal kicks ending in goals, just these back to front passing moves. I think it's fantastic. I think that rule change is actually, I, I remember actually it, it came in when we started at The Athletic. I think my first article for The Athletic was about how this would change it, but it's changed it much more than I expected. From an in-possession perspective, I did a piece back in March about short goal kicks and how if you are watching from from the stands, it's your own team, it can look a little bit risky at times. You think just get it out of you know your area, just get rid of it. But statistically speaking, short goal kicks are more likely to to reach the box, the attacking box within 60 seconds. Far more lucrative than a than a long goal kick. But again, speaking about, you know, what you think the future of tactics will will hold, it feels like it's kind of going a little bit cyclical again, where, you know, we've seen it with Manchester City and Arsenal at times to to go longer from a goal kick. And you think, well, is it because they know that teams are going to press them? They're going to go man for man, they're going to lock on early doors. Therefore, we can just hijack that and put it straight to, to Haaland you know and feed off there so will we then start to see more long goal kicks as a consequence and maybe more lucrative or, or almost medium kicks to, to your point Michael that it's actually not long hit and hope as we maybe consider it typically but one maybe sort of fizzed into the halfway line for a, a striker coming short and then we build from there and then bypass the initial press because teams are going short more therefore defensively people are looking for solutions so then as an attacking from an attacking perspective you've got to think of a solution again and that suits the profiles of players that are existing now and that are coming more back into the game so that suits a number nine that can be airily dominant or physical and can receive and, and set a pass that suits the the quick inverted winger that can make those out to him runs in behind or can get 1v1 it's not Premier League specific but if anyone's watched uh, Nice on the Farioli this season they're a perfect example of what, of what Michael's talking about where they're often attacking in a 4-3-3 and it will be seven of their own players in their own defensive third at goal kicks, almost always passing short from the goalkeeper. Sometimes then the centre-back will get to open out and play long and they've got basically a 3v3 on the halfway line when teams match them up. They've got a big number nine they can play into in Terra Moffi. They've got a quick wing on the left in Jeremy Boga and Gates on the board similarly on the right. And it's it's just great because teams, at times you can kind of know what's going to happen and you then get the rise of the, the decoy kick where you, know, you shape up that way and then you play it long because... Teams might know that's going to happen or have an inkling, but you still have to set up the press because then if you don't and they play short, you've just given them time and space. So it's a, I think it's an impossible situation to solve in that regard because it's just it's a lot of preparation for what might happen and you're just trying to avoid the worst case scenario. And lastly, in terms of tactics, just player profiles that have trended upwards or downwards, Liam. It feels like there's been a, a broader formation shift across the game that has been bad news for centre-backs, good news for wide forwards. I mean, possibly. It depends how you look at it. So as we were sort of saying at the start with the the box midfield and then what becomes sort of a 3-2-4-1, a 3-2-5, a, a however you want to sort of look at it, a 3-box-3, three three. you look at that on paper, normally that's out of how we would write it down as, as a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-3-3. Three three. Um, so looking at some of the data, there's a good good Premier League article on this um, from the end of end of the season, so sort of halfway through the year, give or take. There was a, a 61% rise in 4-2-3-1s compared to last season and a 60% reduction in 3-5-2s, which I guess makes sense. And we're sort of in the fallout now from that, you know, very much wing-back era from sort of late, I suppose, 2016-17. So you, you do get the more physical centre-backs now. I think that 
coaches seem to want. And I wonder if it's just down to a, a control aspect, which links back to the what we were saying at the start about moving a defender into midfield. For some teams, I'd, I'd say Liverpool are the exception. I feel like putting Alexander-Arnold in midfield is because he's just genuinely a phenomenal passer of the ball. And you're like, I want him in the middle of the pitch where he can play the most passes and we can be the best in attack. And of course, they're restructuring their midfield. But for City, it, it feels more like, you know, we want control, momentum, you know, control the flow of the game, better set to counter-press and similar for Arsenal. And now the whole... The stick that Arsenal being beaten with is, are oh, you more boring? Which is probably a good thing for them as, you know, having title credentials. So I guess that is a very roundabout way of, of answering your question. I mean, on the note of formations as well, it feels like there's slightly more appreciation, maybe in broadcasting and in the media, of the differences of the nuances of formations and phases of play, game state. And that's that's not to say that it wasn't already well established within clubs among managers and coaches. But I feel like I'm certainly becoming more appreciative of yeah, the different phases. I mean, was it Arteta saying in a post-match or a pre-match press conference that they used 36 different formations at, at one point? So I think there's there's more appreciation of the yeah the different phases of play and we're, we're, we're certainly seeping more into the media, I would say, um, rather than just within clubs. Yeah, I start to see now City listed as their starting formations like a 3-2-4-1 in games where they're putting stuff yeah. automatically as a midfielder. So yeah, it's, it's difficult because the reality is it's... If that's the sort of the state of the game they're in for the most time, you can go fair enough. That's the average time that they'll be in. But yeah, it's a thing of okay, we now understand that we can't really encapsulate it into one thing, and it's more that as Mark says that that broad appreciation. I think the idea of viewing it um, as sort of like almost like chess gambits, and I hate the football chess comparisons, but that way of being like it's a whole entire move. It's not just one thing that's a formation. It's they're doing this move in this way to get this sort of outcome from it. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, let's get statistical. What have been the major statistical trends of top-level football in 2023. There's goals. There's loads of goals. Yes, goals. About Great year for goals. Great year for goals. This season, so 2023-24, is the fastest ever to 500 goals. And the rate, as a piece I've got sort of on the back burner, because the Liverpool United game completely uh, threw it out of the water, <laughs> was that goals uh, in big six games are massively up. In fact, there were... I think that was the the fourteenth meeting of big six teams uh, in the Premier League this season. Obviously, there's thirty games across the season among those teams, and there'd only been collectively three clean sheets prior to that game. You got a really weirdly high amount of draws, but a weirdly high amount of goals as well. So you're getting loads of high score draws. You've got you know the the Chelsea City. It's just a bit peculiar at times. I don't really have sort of a hard and fast explanation for it. There's definitely lots of quality going forward, but you think it's at odds really with the fact that lots of coaches now want to control games better, whether it's things down to injury and like not always having consistent starting 11s, a condensed fixture list. It's obviously nuanced, but um, I'm intrigued to hear what 
the other mindset to say. I think a big factor is what we've just spoken about in terms of short goal kicks. It's the risk and reward thing we've spoken about before. But as Mark said, with these short goal kicks, there's more probability of getting to the opposition box in 60 seconds. But there's quite obviously more probability that you're going to lose the ball on the edge of your own box, which we've seen. It's almost like a matter of course these days. Usually, I mean, like five, ten years ago, if a team played a square ball across their box, lost the ball and conceded a goal, you'd be like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Whereas now you're like, yeah, that's just part, you know, part of the game. But, you know, go back ten years when teams just took goal kicks and they'd hoof it towards the centre circle, you can be fairly sure 30 seconds after that, you're not going to have a goal. You're just not because the ball's in a neutral zone. Both sides are just congesting the play. I think that's got to make... I mean, I would guess that would increase the goals per game rate by like 0.2 a game. I mean, it's wild, you know, estimation based upon absolutely nothing. But and one, got in, five, a, it's got one a, in five games feels realistic. Yeah, it's yeah, got to have a yeah. massive impact. Surely. And that's quite neat as well, isn't it? Because in purely data-driven terms, Mark one of the reasons that teams started to play short was the numbers were crunched. And as Michael said, it was proven empirically that you had more chance only by a few decimal points of scoring a goal, creating a chance, whatever it was. Of course, it also raises the possibility of you conceding a goal. So therefore, however many years later, we now have more goals in top level football. Yeah, and it's marginal gains that you want to, to try and create and, and innovate, but then people become wise to those marginal gains and they try to counter it. It's what, what I mentioned before. And as, as Michael said, there is a, and as we've all said, there's an element of risk and reward. And yeah, there's a few that come to mind with Brighton, actually, Lee, and there's a few, was it against Bournemouth, where it was a calamitous one. But as Michael said, it felt like it was actually quite normal. You, you sort of thought, okay, well, it's par for the course. And it probably speaks to something I'd like to speak to on this episode that managers are really quite dogmatic more dogmatic than they've ever been so you carry on doing it normally it's like okay we won't make that mistake again maybe we'll go long for a couple of balls and then the next few goal kicks but it's like no Postacoglu, Zerbi, etc want their players to play out this way so you're more likely to see it week on week and they actually fun enough become the culprits now for and they I think partly because they've taken on so much responsibility of saying no I want them to do this and then it's like you know Spurs lose at home to Chelsea and we did did a podcast on this about you know how you play when you've you've had red cards and no criticism of the Spurs back four for how they actually you know approached and tried to defend with the high line because they are the ones and implementing the tactics so yeah it's uh, it's become a, a wild situation in that regard I think that the pressing as well going up across the board it just opens the game up at both ends, right? Because if a team's trying to regain the ball higher, they're going to be more open to be played through. And then if they regain it, they're going to win it closer to goal. I think the ball in play time has gone up as well, partly because teams must be, as Michael says, if they're not smashing it long as much, you know, you're going to get, I assume, like fewer throw-ins out of that. So just the ball being on the pitch more logically means you should get more attacks and you should get more goals. I think we should probably mention as well that beyond all the tactical points, the games are just a bit longer now. So even an extra five, 10 minutes, you know, that happens nine times, 10 times, you know, across a period of games. That's a whole extra match worth, which is quite a boring explanation when we're trying to be quite insightful, but it is true. So another reduction in loss aversion, is that what we would call it? Teams, and I think this is in keeping with elite level sport across the board. We've mentioned Basball a few times on this podcast this year for a reason. There are parallels with what we see in football. Michael, broadly, this idea that going for it, being playing with less fear of what might happen against you uh, will help you execute positive outcomes more naturally, more easily. And, and this 
seems to be part of, of football tactics at the top level as well, what we're talking about today. Yeah, and I think people want a certain type of football now. I mean, again, go back a few years, there was quite an elite group of clubs where there was really a sense that you had to play the right way. The manager had to come in and play good football. Whereas it's happening all over the Premier League now. There's not many Premier League clubs where, you know, I think Sam Allardyce could go in and do a good job in terms of results and keep the supporters happy in terms of entertainment. I mean, we're seeing it from, for example, Crystal Palace fans. There's been a a bit of a backlash against the way they're playing, you know, a sense of they're, they're playing quite boring football. Be interesting to see what happens with Everton, I think, over the next couple of years, because in terms of results, Sean Dyche is doing excellently. But when you watch a 90-minute game, they are very direct. And, uh, you know, with the big new stadium, with quite a grand old club with traditions of playing attacking football, it'd be interesting to see whether there is boredom that creeps in with that philosophy too. What's been happening with cards, with discipline? Because I feel like 2023, we really lurched from from one end of the spectrum to the other. Yeah, there was a record low number of red cards last season, which also feels a bit odd of what we're saying about, you know, the risk that players are taking in and build up and impressing and that, you know, if centre-back loses the ball in the edge of the box, then they might, you know, feel a rush to sort of pull someone over or make a tactical foul being a bit more exposed. Um, maybe it's just a quality rise that players are better, smarter decision makers now and know when to make tackles, know when to not make tackles and just execute their actions better. I imagine the pass accuracy continues to trend up and, and things like that. And coaches probably put tactical systems in place to limit those flaws better than ever. But we're now, uh, I think Marks might have the number specifically, but we're now seeing, and this is again, I think a VAR thing, right? Or a refereeing thing more broadly about, I don't know, is, is the word crackdown for the, the discipline, petulance, uh, petulancy of the, the bookings and the, the gesturing, kicking the ball away, etc.? Yeah, things like dissent, things like time-wasting are, are being clamped down on far more. So you're already kind of walking a bit of a tightrope if you do something like that in the first 20 minutes. Then just a, a soft tackle or a you know a daft challenge is then going to be another yellow and then you're off. And it, it just seems to be happening more and more. So by December the 3rd, so obviously the start of this month, there were 31 red cards in 140 Premier League games this season, which was at that point already more than there were in all 380 matches in the season before. So we're currently at 37 red cards in total. That includes straight reds and second yellows. Um, so yeah, 30 last season, 43 the season before. So I think across the Premier League era, we're on for a record-breaking number of of red cards. And I, I do think it is more the the clamp down on the, 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 the silly um, sort of challenges and the the silly petulancy, as you say, Liam, rather than it necessarily being that the game has got a bit more you know, dirty in the challenges. VAR, as you say, comes into it as well. I think there's been a few occasions I've seen which is just more, maybe it's a thinking of things about build-up as well, where I've seen it a few times with either defensive midfielders or fullbacks coming inside that they're, they're collecting the ball with pressure, they're taking a heavy touch and then the subsequent touch is a 50-50 duel and they're just that little bit too high. With VAR, with a still image, it always looks really nasty. It happened with Eve Basuma last Friday and I feel like those sorts of ones are on the increase as well. But Definitely feels like it, doesn't it? I mean, there was mm. the Romero against Chelsea, which he didn't get sent off for, then latterly did get sent mm. off for uh, something in their own box. I wonder if we can make a pretty clear link between the slightly more open football that we're watching, more onus on man-to-man moments and duels and the increased speed. It always gets quicker and quicker. The players get more athletic while maintaining the highest possible technical level. And these types of challenges that we see, as you say, I feel like nowadays there's much less 
someone's trying to injure someone. Someone's actually put in a, a reducer for, you know, I don't even really know why that ever happened, but it felt like it used to happen quite a lot. You could tell someone's just trying to stick one on the opposition player. Now we get straight reds cards for serious foul play, which look terrible and, and can be leg breakers while also being just a tiny misjudgment. Yeah, the, the margins have, have become smaller, right? And I think there's tactical repercussions for that or technical repercussions on, on an individual player level that if, if fullbacks only get booked more, then better dribblers should have a lot more success because they've got more opportunity to go at someone without or with a reduced chance of being tackled. And fullbacks who are better at, at jockeying players or you know can defend better 1v1 that move their feet better, that can match stride patterns, should work because if they're, you know, I'm thinking maybe someone more like Juan Masako who feels more tackle heavy, he's going to struggle a lot more to defend in his style on a yellow card because he can't dive in as much naturally. So I think you can then see who can adapt their game better. Then the reverse of that in possession is, I guess, if you're going to get more yellow cards or more bookings, you're going to want better controllers of play. You know, you're going to need that central midfielder sometimes who can stand the ball, who, who can keep possession. I'm thinking of, you know, Bruno Fernandes being outrageously creative, but at times isn't always the midfielder United need to actually, you know, control the ball, control the game. And then he got, he missed the Liverpool game, right? Because he got a, a fifth booking for a petulant foul or something, I think it was. So you then need certain types of, profile I think in order to adapt that it's it's basically become to use a, a rugby example my rugby knowledge isn't great but from what I've seen and I know that Michael will love this is that um, it basically becomes a game itself for the first 60 minutes and then the subs come on and they really completely change the game it's then kind of like okay what's your game plan for, for 60 and of course with five subs now there's you know more scope for the game to open up that way but it's then how do you win lose or draw the game in the final half an hour with maybe a slightly different approach that was exactly my point that I was going to say about substitutions. I wonder whether, again, looking forward, we may be even seeing more substitutions in the first half, especially if it's a, a player or more a position where you think, OK, they might get caught out here. And you, you see it often more in the second half or towards the end of a game. OK, we need to bring him off because he's he's on a, a yellow. He's maybe made a bit of an agricultural challenge there. His head's a little bit spinning. We need to take him off. I wonder whether that will happen more in the first half because we've they've got more opportunity um, to make subs, you know, with, with five substitutions being available. But you know what? I reckon that definitely will happen, Mark. Yeah. And I'll always think of you when it does. There you go. There you go. Predictions. Pioneer. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them it's this willingness decisiveness and resilience that sets marines apart with our fighting spirit we don't just fight battles we win them marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown and through adaptable problem solving we do just that learn more at marines.com in terms of the most important clubs in 2023 we must have spoken more about manchester city than any other team on merit they won an incredible treble. But Mark, when you look at the Premier League table for the calendar year, there probably is one team that 
and only one team where you have to genuinely do a double take. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely nuts. So Chelsea would have 42 points, uh, thinking only of the calendar year, which would put them in the relegation zone if we were to consider only the teams who have played both this season and last season in the Premier League, which technically isn't true. There'd be one position above the our fake relegation zone here based purely on goal difference, but that's simply because the other teams will have played 38 or 39. So they've actually played more games, which is obviously more opportunity to accrue more points and they still haven't taken it. But the, the point still remains. They've they've averaged just 1.1 points per game as an average across the whole calendar year. And I just started to dig further and further into this and I got some fun stats from it. So they've only won 10 games this calendar year. Only Crystal Palace and Nottingham Forest have won fewer. They've only won back-to-back games twice in the calendar year. That was last season against Leicester and Leeds, who we know both went down. And this season, uh, Burnley and Fulham. They've lost 18 games in the calendar year. Only Bournemouth have lost more. They've obviously started the year with Graham Potter as their manager. Frank Lampard came in, had some interim along the way and, and Pochettino coming in as well. It's just nuts. And my favourite one actually was on Twitter. Reese James obviously got injured a couple of weeks ago and was out for the rest of the year. Reese James ended 2023 having won only one Premier League game all year. And that was a 4-1 win over Spurs when they went down to nine men. So it's just... it. That's Chelsea we're talking about. It's just, it's nuts <laughs> to me that this is the case. Can you tell how outraged I am? It just reminds me of uh, the comedian Michael Spicer's uh, bit about football pundits just sitting there in TV studios going, this is Manchester yeah, United <laughs> Football Club. We're talking about Always Manchester United. Yeah, I did go a bit Gary Neville there. <laughs> uh, it is astounding and Anus Horribilis for Chelsea. But how about the Anus Mirabilis? For Aston Villa. Yeah, I thought you were going to say when there's one team you have to double check. I thought you were going to say it's Aston Villa. Second in terms of most points won. An incredible job from Unai Emery, who of course wasn't in charge for for that much longer before uh, this calendar year. But they've been fantastic. I mean, the the organisation is is tremendous, as we expect from an Unai Emery side. I quite like what they've done with their formation in recent weeks. It's 4-4-2, but elements of 3-5-2 as well with Matty Cash and, and Konza playing quite clever roles down the right. Ollie Watkins, who I must admit I wasn't convinced would ever be prolific at Premier League level, has really evolved this season. He's a really, really clever player. Our Aston Villa reporter Jacob Tanswell's done a couple of really good pieces on him and Emery encouraging him to basically restrict his movement to kind of goal-scoring positions, stay between the width of the penalty area rather than drifting out wide. And the other interesting thing, which... Uh, Quite like the fact I was at Kenilworth Road a couple of weeks ago for Luton against Manchester City and I heard two Luton fans discussing Aston Villa's offside stats one, which felt like quite a weird kind of conversation for, you know, actual match going fans rather than people on a football tactics podcast. But as we're recording, Aston Villa have caught the opposition offside 82 times this season. The next most is Tottenham on 56. Obviously offside stats are a little bit unreliable now because you don't always actually get you know even if you catch someone offside it might you know the play might might not stop etc but that sums up how well they are squeezing the play and that's just Unai Emery all over in terms of his organization although I suppose quite a different approach from the Emery we've seen before where sometimes they actually his teams actually play quite deep but yeah Villa have been fantastic 
And I must say, I think are actually a contender for the title. I know people are talking about a contender for the top four, but I think if you get to this stage of the season and you are where they are in the league, uh, you've got to consider them. And they're set up really well to have a deep run in the in the Conference League as well. Right? When you look at em- Emery's pedigree and the fact that they're consistently good at starting games well with control, going one the up in games, and their style, if you want to compare that to anyone, really is, is the fact that one of Brighton's problems this season has been going 1-0 down in games and then wanting to play a possession system, which is harder against a, a deeper block. And I actually went to and, and wrote on the, the Villa-Fulham game, which I'm sure will live long in the memory for many people, uh, the back end of last season. Fulham were without Mitrovic, admittedly, but Villa were, were so controlled and they took time to, to break them down. They did end up winning, but I've really liked how they've got a real clear sort of tactical identity, but with enough room to be a little bit flexible too. And if you sort of compare that to, to Chelsea, who feel like they've just been chopping and changing the, the whole calendar year. The fact that they, I think, were going to possibly sack Graham Potter if they lost against Dortmund in the Champions League and they got through and then didn't have like a replacement lined up for when they did eventually sack him. And I thought that just, it feels like really poor foresight on my perspective on, you know, when you've recruited so heavily and had so many signings, whereas Villa actually had, I think, understandably some criticism over the players they brought in of, these are good profiles, but will they actually sort of elevate the team? And now they've gone from um, last season being a real sort of left side rotating team where um, I think it was Alex Moreno a lot or, or Luca Dean would really push forward down that left side and the left sided winger would, would move in and you get those sort of number 10s and John McGinn's done that excellently this season against City was a great example. And, and Tom Harris, um, one of our, our writers wrote about that of sort of being able to receive and, and spin players. They, you know, they build short, but again, when we were saying about the directness earlier on, we'll go sort of goalkeeper to centre-back short and then it's centre-back into number nine or centre-back into number 10 and set uh, and play from there. So what they're doing might be unsustainable to a degree. It's it's hard to always go one lap in games and to always take the game to sort of top teams, but they're really, really exciting to watch by virtue, I think, of being a bit different as well. There's a good amount where you go, I know what I'm going to get when I watch a Villa game and still a bit of unpredictability. And it clearly works as a good balance against the top teams. Yeah, game state massively affects things. We're seeing it with, with Arsenal this season in contrast to last season of them scoring early on and things like that. But yeah, while we're listing uh, games that we've been to, I went to Aston Villa against Manchester United towards the end of last season. The reason I say it is because they were holding a really high line then as well. And it was still fairly early on for, for Unai Emery. And it just looked like they were just asking for trouble. There was just deep runs, especially from Marcus Rashford as well. And they were, they were so dogmatic in keeping that high line. And I was just like, you need to just drop off a couple of yards when you know that the player is about to play the pass without pressure on the ball. It's ju- You're just asking for trouble. But the reason I say it is because to Michael's point about the, the statistics, they're doing it so, so well now. Their triggers and their understanding of time on the training pitch they are doing it so so much better and it was noticeable from from that game I went to to now how brave they are off the ball in in holding that line but also how successful they are so it's obviously testament from towards the start of the year to now how much Emery has really instilled that that really structured way of playing. They went to Newcastle on the opening day and got smashed 5-1 with the high line they went to Liverpool uh, on game week four and got completely pressed to death they're prepared to have the extremely bad moments and the bad losses um, to have the overall success. Maybe that's the the motto of football in 2023. Be more open to the bad moments to increase the chances of the good ones. <laughs> Michael, we also had the Women's World Cup uh, over our summer, certainly not the summer in the Southern Hemisphere where you were covering this for The Athletic. Loads of really interesting tactical bits and bobs from the Women's World Cup. Yeah, it was a fantastic tournament. The interesting thing, I think, overall was the fact that there was an expansion to 32 teams and yet 
the competitiveness was still there. You know, the, four years ago, there were scorelines like 13-0 when US beat Thailand, but we don't have anything like that. It was incredible. I think a lot of that was a physical improvement from some of the outsiders. But in terms of more specifics, there were five key themes I've, I've kind of got here. One was the lack of individualism, and that was a big change from four years ago where it felt like certain players, particularly for the US, were just miles ahead of everyone else, could dominate the game. They weren't able to do that this time around. Of course, the US were maybe the big underachievers of the, the tournament. The second factor I've got is the compactness. I mean, we spoke about it in relation to the, the Premier League, where sometimes you don't have that compactness because the game is so stretched. But the women's game, everything was squashed really into the middle third. And again, that meant that individual players couldn't make the difference. There was a massive shift towards in-swinging corners. And I was at a game in Wellington between Sweden and Italy, where Sweden scored from three of them. Um, and FIFA's technical study group found that in-swinging deliveries from the left compared to 2019 had gone from 41% to 89%. And from the right had gone from 21% to 56%. So that was just a massive theme. And it, it did kind of dominate games a little bit too much. And in the latter stages, there was also a real emphasis on basically just keeping your starting 11 on the pitch together. There were five subs available for the first time, but actually a lot of the games, you really wouldn't have noticed it. A few of the managers said they worried about subs picking up the speed of the game, which I think is quite interesting. And again, the games are more intense than a few years ago. The crowds are bigger. I think actually, you know, we've spoken before about having a coach who just focus on substitutes. I mean, I almost think that was maybe lacking in this World Cup because subs just didn't make that much of an impact. And finally, just a very low goals per game rate, the lowest ever, a lot lower than you would get at the Men's World Cup or in men's top-level leagues. There were a few factors in that. I would say one of the main ones was just the good goalkeeping. Um, you know, that's been the area that the women's game was criticised for before. But Meriup, Stephanie Van Domselaar, Zatira Musevic, Kata Cole, who came in for Spain midway through the tournament, the goalkeeping is at a really high level. So again, it relates to the fact that we didn't see these big 13-0 games and that there were a lot of 1-0s, a lot of 2-0s, not very many games where both sides scored. So all in all, just very competitive. Plenty of major tournaments to come next year in 2024. We'll be across it all on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast for the 52nd time in 2023 and the last time. Let me say, I really enjoyed that. Thanks, guys. Michael, to Mark, to Liam for joining me today and on so many other occasions in what's been a highly enjoyable year presenting this podcast. I'd like to also thank our extended family on the Tactics Pod, other contributors such as Duncan, Ahmed, Tom Harris as well, but also the production team that spends so much time making us sound better and making this podcast uh, the best that it can be for you guys to enjoy. So uh, thanks to you for listening, whether it's today for the first time in which case we hope you'll join us more regularly or if you've done the whole lot this year it's been fantastic to have you uh, do sign up to the athletic today theathletic.com forward slash tactics is the best place to find a discount on an annual subscription perhaps it could be a gift for a loved one this christmas in the meantime we wish you all a fantastic festive season and we can't wait to be back with you in a couple of weeks The Athletic.